Hi everyone, this is Joseph Long and this is episode one of This Is The Long Version. Stories and musings about 21st century parenting, education, and organizing the creative process. Enlightening conversations with special guests about music, film, art, family, history, and the outdoors. With a cup of reheated coffee from the top of a Pacific Northwest mountain, I'm Joseph Long and this is The Long Version. Thank you so much for being here. I am glad you're here. I hope you're here for longer than 90 seconds. Just in case you aren't, I would like to thank my brother, Jeremy Long, musician, producer, sound engineer out of Portland, Oregon, who helped encourage me and provided some of the logistics to help this sound as good as it does. So he deserves the credit for anything that sounds good. Obviously, I'm not going to take the blame for anything that doesn't sound as good as it should, Really, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus, but the kids, it's the kids. I have four children. Alongside my wife, the Countess Becca, we raise these four children, play with them, learn alongside them on a mountain outside Portland, Oregon, by the majestic Columbia Gorge. We have a wonderful time. She says I'm very opinionated about a lot of things. Along the way, I have developed and written a lot of content in a variety of areas, does not make me a master, just means that I'm interested in a lot of things and I'm fascinated by how people learn by both formal and informal education. I think it can be fun. I think you can have a great time learning. I think there are certain core areas of knowledge that make sense to learn. I'm a big fan of project-based learning. I'm also a big fan of the simple dialogue that a little guy named Socrates helped teach us many years ago. I would love to share some of these thoughts on education, on relationships, on the creative process, on being a dad and parent, and on simply leading an adventurous, healthy, and imaginative life. Thank you for being here still. Two thoughts on educational content and screen usage. I've been thinking a lot about the value of learning how to read, write, and or draw early and their relationship to technology and boredom. Maybe interact with paper is a better way of phrasing what I'm trying to say. I say this without being a technophobe. As someone who loves film and television and balance and who is not raising a Luddite household, Luddite, of course, referring to someone who is opposed to new technology or new ways of doing things, which I'm not. I love what technology can do for us when we leash it firmly and train it well. Specifically, what I mean is this. How do we as parents, educators, and society help our children learn to not immediately default to a phone or tablet every time they have nothing else to do? I'm not pointing fingers. Every parent needs to do what they need to do at a particular point. I've certainly used these things before as distractions, but to me there's also a key difference between something being an occasional distraction and becoming a habit. How do we help our children not develop a habit of picking up a phone every time they have a free 30 seconds to do something. There are three things I think are important. Number one, modeling. Showing them what we mean with our own actions and not twiddling through a screen every time we have a free minute. What do we do with our precious free seconds and minutes? I've got a ton of ideas and again, of course, I'm a hypocrite too. Number two, learn to converse in person. Help them learn to carry on interesting dialogue with others that is a two-way or multi-part conversation. The joy and value of carrying on stimulating and interesting dialogues with others is incalculable, and it's something that can be learned, practiced, and modeled. And number three, teach the value of doodling and having emergency of print supplies at all times. 
I grew up with a sketch pad in hand, especially during church or other meetings. It helped me focus. The original fidget spinner, only I had some mediocre drawings, random movie lists, and story ideas sprawled across various pages at the end. Make sure they have one of those three or all available. Something to read and something to write, draw, or doodle. Boredom is an incredible motivator, so don't leap to their rescue every time they hit that point. Let them figure things out and give them a small and minimal number of resources to figure their way out of a Mobius boredom loop. So let's lay the bait. I'm getting a little weary of the dog whistle of educational content. In other words, the magic inclusion of these words to apps, software, games, television programs, films, and any digital content is often a salve for helping many parents feel better about the time their child is spending in front of a screen. It's educational. I love Sesame Street and think it's a great educational program. It doesn't mean that spending six hours a day of watching Sesame Street is educational. Just like organic on food packaging a decade ago, these magic words appear with little to no oversight and make us feel better about the choices we make without being demonstrably effective or accurate. We could fill our days watching or playing educational content. What gets lost sometimes is the importance of doing two things as a parent. One, forget trying to cover all the bases of educational content if you're a parent. Say no to parental FOMO, fear of missing out. That terror that somehow you're denying your child an opportunity or advantage if you don't provide access to all the greatest educational resources. We use a supplementary math resource called IXL that many of you are probably familiar with. It's a great resource. Better than some, probably not as good as some others, but it works for us. I am not worried about trying to find every great online math resource. We still drill our kids on timetables regularly, in person, orally. Quick, what's 14 times 13? Point is, the basics are still the same, and you can practice those foundations with them easily without batteries needed, and B, pick a good resource and go with it. IXL, Con, Reflex, or Sesame Street, Arthur, Wildcrats, and PBS Kids. We're flooded with choices, good choices. Doesn't mean we have to choose all of them. Number two. Balance the digital with the hands-on, the print, and the outdoors. The digital, online, virtual screen world is not evil. It's a part of our lives, and instead of having a codependent relationship with these things and telling our kids how bad they are while using them ourselves every opportunity we get, we can show them how useful and enjoyable technology can be, especially when it's balanced out with a healthy dose of physical activity, reading, hands-on recreation, conversation, music-making, and outdoor pursuits. Technology is not evil. And if you think it is, well, perhaps this is a good weekend to sit down and watch the entire Terminator franchise with them. While we're on the topic of education, let me just say something I love about the age of nine. It's the way kids volunteer to answer questions without embarrassment. What is 14 times nine? A teacher asks, and arms shoot up all over. Who can tell me about the Magna Carta? A teacher asks, and arms shoot up all over. What is a building block of cellular biology? A teacher asks, and arms shoot up all over. Love it. May we all learn from that. For this first episode, I'm going to talk about one of my favorite musicians, Franz Joseph Haydn. Musician, composer, extraordinaire in the 18th and 19th century, placing him in the classical period, Franz J., as I like to call him, made a name for himself, besides simply possessing a splendid name, as father of the symphony. Born in Austria, he was geographically isolated for much of his life as he was kept on retainer for a wealthy Hungarian family. This kept him from being influenced by other composers and trends and Pinterest, which wasn't around, and forced him to develop his own original music off his own original ideas. Although he was often lonely, he developed some beautiful friendships as well. A muse-like, affectionate one with his employer's doctor's wife, have a chuckle over that one, and one with a fellow who also made music occasionally called Wolfgang A. Mozart. 
History describes him as being a pretty good guy with a big heart and a strong sense of humor. This humor sometimes comes out in his music. Occasional loud chords from nowhere, false endings, playful experiments with rhythm. Much of his work is rollicking and upbeat, although he also wrote some beautiful minor key works that showed his serious side. He was influential on the development of the sonata and on using small motifs to build big pieces. The first time I heard Symphony in G minor was an accident, and I fell in love at first listen. I'm especially drawn to Haydn, not only because of what he made, the music he made, but because of the kind of artist and person he was. He reminds me a bit of the artist Matisse, who not only excelled within his art form, but was also a pretty decent human being. Haydn was a good father, a fine teacher, a wonderful mentor, talented composer and musician, a beautiful human being in many ways, who came into his own late in life and influenced many. Great artist, great human being. Franz Joseph Haydn, please do yourself a favor. Go give yourself a listen to Symphony in G Minor once, twice, 25 times, whatever whatever you need to to make your life a little better today. It's wonderful. Someday maybe I'll learn to play it on piano and I'll post it on a later episode. Enjoy. I'm sitting here in the studio with my guest today, Johannes who also happens to be my son. How old are you? Nine. Nine. What have you been doing living in week two of your first pandemic? Um, reading, setting up time lapses, playing outside, watching movies, and eating. Okay, that is very interesting. I'd like for you to tell me, first of all, what you're shooting time lapses of. Uh, just the sky, like the clouds. Do you have a favorite type of cloud? I like rain clouds. I like rain clouds as well. Are you a fan of rain? Because I am. Yes. Good. Tell me about some of the books you've been reading. Um. Well, right now I'm reading The Book Thief. And yeah. What is The Book Thief about? It sounds like it's glorifying crime. Yes. Um. It's during World War II and this girl... Uh, start stealing books from book burnings and other places, and uh, she soon learns that a Jewish man is uh, hiding in her basement. So are you saying that it's good to burn books? No. Would you say that you're pro-book burning or anti-book burning? Very anti. Yeah, I would say I'm very anti as well, so I'm kind of proud to hear you say that. What is it about The Book Thief that you are really enjoying? Well, I like how it's narrated. It's narrated by death and... By death? Yes. That sounds very eerie. Yeah. Is that a strange book to be reading right now with everything going on with uh, COVID-19? Uh, not really. Why? I don't know, really. It just doesn't seem that strange to read during uh, the coronavirus. Okay. Are there any other books you're reading that you're especially enjoying that don't have to do with crime? Well, um, I'm reading Brave New World. Okay. And who wrote this book? Aldous Huxley. What is it that you're enjoying, or what is it that you're drawn to about A Brave New World? Um, well, I'm not very far in yet, but... Well, I like where it's heading so far in the hatchery building. 
Would you say this is a description? So, of course, the famous book by Aldous Huxley about a utopian society? No, dystopian. What's the difference between utopia and dystopia? Uh, utopia is like a perfect world, and dystopia is a world that they tried to make perfect but turned out disastrous. Okay, it sounds like <coughs> it could be a few things in common with The Book Thief. Um, what about films? You, you mentioned you've been watching some films. Anything that you would strongly recommend or strongly stay away from? Well, we just saw Avatar, and I really liked that. And uh, we saw it a while ago, but Jojo Rabbit, my favorite movie. Your favorite movie of the day? No, of just all time right now. Really? So you talked about The Book Thief, and... You talked about Avatar, and you talked about Jojo Rabbit. Two out of those three have to do with World War II. Would you say that you are you have a bit of a strong interest in World War II? Yeah, I really like uh, historical fiction books and movies about World War II. Tell me a little bit about Jojo Rabbit. Why, why are you so drawn to that? Well, I like how it's historical fiction during World War II, and... I like the humor in it, too, and, yeah, I think it's really well written. Do you think there's any danger in taking a horrific figure such as Hitler and kind of turning him into this uh, comical character? I mean, do you, yeah. think, do you think that does a disservice? Well, I think it could be, but I think how he wrote it, I think it was well-written, like how Taika Waititi did it. Okay. Do you see yourself, I mean, do you enjoy writing or making stories? Yes, or? I love writing and making stories. Are you working on any of your own currently? Um, well, I'm working on one for creative writing class right now, and I was writing one with uh, my cousin. Can you g give a little bit of a teaser what it's about? Um... Pale-faced ladies with chainsaws who kidnap little children. Is this based on a true story? No. I am terrified just simply hearing that. And I suppose I should let our audience know that I've heard many of these pale-faced ladies with chainsaw stories while we are on various road trips late at night. And they are, in fact, as terrifying as they sound, based on the one sentence that you just said. They are absolutely terrifying. Thank and you. I can't stop listening. Thank would you. you say they're kid-friendly? Um, well, even though I'm a kid, I would say no, because it has very disturbing images, especially if it was made into a movie. Do you think it should be made into a movie? Definitely. Do you see yourself making movies someday? Yes. What about being a marine biologist or astronaut or epidemiologist? Well, I more want to be like an author and a movie maker and an actor. Okay. You've also mentioned that you might occasionally for a first part-time job do something in particular. <laughs> you mentioned that you might, like, just for a part-time job when you're a teenager, be on, on Saturday Night Live. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, just for a little while. It sounds really fun. Have you actually seen Saturday Night Live? Uh, yes, a little bit. When? Well, I've seen a while ago, I, like, 
snippet of like a Trump one, and I've seen a Ruth Spader Ginsburg one, I think, maybe, and I think maybe some others. Do you mind, and if you would rather not answer this, it's okay, because your politics are, of course, your own opinion, and you do not need to share that with anybody if you would like to (laughs) not, but if you were not the tiny, tender little age of nine, and you were double the age you were right now, and you could vote, who would you be campaigning for right now? Or who do you think you might vote for, if you're comfortable answering that? If you don't want to answer, it's okay. I'll answer it. Um, Well, probably Biden, because he's pretty close to winning right now, or getting to running versus Trump. But if Pete Buttigieg was still in, I would probably say Pete Buttigieg. He's got some good things going for him that I, I respect. I understand where you're coming from. Um, what about um, Dr. Trump's handling of this coronavirus <coughs> pandemic? Um, I'm sorry, did I say Dr. Trump? I meant to say um, President Trump. <laughs> he has a lot of thoughts on public health policy and medicine and so forth. So sometimes I get confused and start thinking that he's actually an expert on those things. But then I remember that he actually is an expert on pretty much everything. So. Well, um. Hmm. Did I actually have a question in there? Yeah. I did. I don't, I don't even remember what it was. Well, it was, how do you feel about Dr. Trump's, uh, reaction about the coronavirus? Right. Well. Most of it, I think, is not the best, but I think it was, he handled it better than all the terrible things he's done, um, then, can you pause it? How do I pause it? This is my first podcast. Sorry. I'm not sure how to pause it. Um. I mean, I do know how to pause it, but then I'd have a bunch of editing to do. Okay. I don't want to have to edit this. Do you want me to turn it off? Shh. Okay, we'll be done. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap things up with uh, my son. Again, your name? Johannes. Thank you for being with us today so much. I always enjoy conversing with you, whether we're being recorded or not. You are a magnificent human being, and I look up to you greatly. Thank Thank you you for being here today. You're welcome. Amen. Our Latin phrase for the day is ex post facto. For the last couple of years, our family has had a delightful time exploring the roots of the English language, which takes us back inevitably to Latin and Greek. Before this sounds overly academic and hard and intimidating and daunting and all these things, let me just make it clear. We're not talking about syntax and conjugation and holding entire conversations in Latin. We're talking about just exploring the roots of how these words in the past are relevant to words and phrases we use now. It's actually pretty exciting. And one thing that we've done to make it even more exciting is to dissect every week or so to to take a common phrase and take it apart. So, for example, ex post facto, which is usually used in legal terms now, if we were to take that apart, ex, E-X, is Latin for from or of or out of. So ex meaning out of. Post meaning after, fairly simple so far, and facto referring to fact. So from out, from after the fact, we might say, a little bit of detective work there, we can start to piece that phrase together. And it's usually 
used in legal terms today. As a parent, I really love the idea of ex post facto because it means that I can uh, institute a family rule or a protocol or something and then apply it retroactively to something just uh, because, you know, I'm the parent and I can do whatever I want kind of thing. As a U.S. citizen, of course, I don't like that idea at all because it means that a law could be made now and then retroactively applied to punish somebody for something they did a long time ago that's not illegal right now. But if we make it illegal now, then at that point in the past, it would be. I think I just said that in the most confusing way possible. But point is, the U.S. Constitution prohibits ex post facto laws, which is a good thing, even though, as a parent, like I said, I still think they sound kind of cool. So ex post facto basically means after the fact. Our history section for this episode is a mini biography I wrote about Alaric the Visigoth. Why is it important for you to know him? Well, he and his Visigoths laid the groundwork for the destruction of the Western Roman Empire and thus the Dark Ages, a thousand year period whose effects we still feel today. I've divided this up into 10 mini chapters. They're short, so here we go. Chapter 1. Thank you for visiting us, Mr. Visigoth. Western civilization is often divided into three main periods. Classical antiquity, the medieval ages, and the modern period. Hint, if you're reading this or listening to this, there's a good chance you live in the last one unless you've successfully built a time machine, in which case I very much want to be your friend. The era we're talking about here is sort of the medieval one, but not exactly. More accurately, we're going to learn about the guy who helped plunge the world into the medieval ages. His name was Alaric, and he was a Visigoth. Chapter 2. Alaric who? If you were a Roman in the 400s, then good for you. You had a massive army defending you and could make fun of the barbarians living north of the Danube River called Goths. Specifically, Visigoths, or Western Goths. They were in an area we now know as Romania, and the Romans hadn't quite gotten around to kicking them out. They simply made fun of them from afar. Not cool. Chapter 3. The enemy of my enemy is... If you tell your kids not to steal your pan of brownies, and they do, then you might get angry. And if you're the Roman emperor, Valens, and you find out there are Goths who are planning and plotting against you, then you might get mad as well, and you might use your massive army to head out to their land and annihilate it. But the Romans weren't in power just because they were strong. They were in power because they were smart. Most of the time they were smart, although, spoiler alert, their intelligence is about to take a nosedive. So when the Goths present a compromise to the Romans, they consider it. What is this proposal? It is this. The Goths are one tribe of barbarians. The Huns are another tribe of barbarians. You might think that barbarians would be friends with other barbarians, but no. The Goths are tired of fighting the Huns, so they propose a deal to Rome. Let us settle in your land south of the Danube, and we'll fight for you when you need help. Deal? Deal, said Rome. So, all were happy. Chapter 4. Birth of a Precious Baby At some point, a wee might of a warrior named Alaric is born to a beautiful barbarian woman, and he probably does adorable things as an infant. Eventually, he moves on from playing and pooping to fighting and killing, and is so good at those things that he is promoted from chief to king. After he's king for a short while, Alaric has a dream. Not the fun kind of dream where you're flying and consume all over the universe, but the fun kind of dream where you break your treaty, attack Rome, and ride through the city streets with people chanting for you to become their emperor. This was his dream, and when he called his chiefs together, they became very excited at the thought of breaking their promise and attacking Rome. Fun. Chapter 5. So it begins. 
Alaric and his horde of gentlemen barbarians gently march through various territories and leave their subtle mark. As in, they completely plundered every town they went through, including Athens. Except that Alaric had a soft spot for religious temples and monuments and sometimes let those stand. Sometimes. If something is bittersweet, it means that there's more than one taste, and it usually implies that part of the taste is good and part of it isn't. Alaric's experiences in this adventure were bittersweet. He got to plunder a bunch of places and do some fighting. That was a good part. But he also got beat by a Roman general named Stilicho in southwest Greece. This was bad. But Alaric escaped. This was good. He charmed his way into a friendship with Arcadius, emperor of the east, who made Alaric a governor of a large region now that near the Ionian Sea. This was good, thus rendering his experience during this time more sweet than bitter. But he still wanted to take down Rome. Chapter 6. Get Back on the Horse. Alaric marches on Rome again. Honorius, emperor of the west, flees to his mountain fortress in northern Italy and sends Alaric's archenemy, General Stilicho, to try and take down Alaric. And he does. Again! But Honorius is not very brave, not very honorable, and not very smart, as evidenced by some of the decisions he made following Alaric's defeat. Again. First, he was still afraid of Alaric, so he made him a governor of part of his empire. This could have been a wise decision, the whole keep your friends close and so forth bit. But Honorius was not very wonderful about keeping all of his promises, so Alaric was forced, much to his delight, to march on Rome again. This was around 408 AD. Somewhere in here, Honorius also bailed on his great general, Stilicho, which was really poor decision-making. So cowardly emperor Honorius has no brilliant military tactician to stave off the Visigoth horde. Chapter 7. Idiot. Honorius refuses to surrender Rome, but the citizens are so terrified of Alaric that they open the gates anyway and ask Alaric to appoint a new emperor. Being a great ruler is hard work, though, and Honorius's replacement was so bad that Alaric decided to replace him. This is what we call a second chance. What did Honorius do with a second chance? Well, chapter 8, part 3. Honorius decides the best way to fight off Alaric the Barbarian would be to pretend to go along with the idea and get his throne back. But he uses his second chance to convince an ally of his to attack Alaric. Alaric is not happy. He lays siege to Rome for a third time. They take the city, of course, they do. And his dream finally comes true. He rides at the head of his army in a great procession through the streets. Then comes the hard work. Destruction. Alaric wraps himself up in some giant robes, sits himself at the throne, and directs the destruction of Rome. The Goths wreck everything. Everything. They seize everything of value and strip the rest. Strangely, Alaric still has a soft spot for the Christian churches, so he orders that they should be kept safe, but everything else is fair game. The pillaging continues, and eventually there are theaters and circuses and performances and gladiators and all sorts of entertaining events going on. Eventually, all good things end, and after six days of this, Alaric and his men march out the gates and head home with Rome's treasure securely loaded up. Chapter 9. A Quick Stop Alaric wanted to make a quick stop by Sicily to do a tiny bit more conquering, but unfortunately he hit a minor roadblock with that plan when something sad happened to him that made the rest of his life very difficult. He died. Fortunately, he was big into dreaming, and he had been having some dreams about his upcoming death, so he was sort of ready and had a plan. Unselfish barbarian that he was, he ordered himself to be buried in the bed of the Bucento River, along with the richest treasures from Rome. So after he died, Roman slaves were put to work digging a channel 
to divert the river's water so they could dig his grave. Once they had dug it and stuck his body and treasure in it, they diverted the river back to its original channel and everything was covered up, completely safe. For good measure, the slaves who did the digging were all put to death, thus inspiring future generations of pirates for many years to come. Chapter 10, The Final Countdown. The complete, final, and utter destruction of Rome is not marked until 476 AD, which is a bit after Alaric's death. But he was the fellow who had a dream, who had a plan, who followed through and refused to give up. This inspiring message of annihilation showed all the other barbarians what was truly possible, thus making it possible for Rome to finally be taken down once and for all later in the century. The End Our science section this episode is going to be focused on astronomy. A year or so ago, I knew next to nothing about astronomy, and now I know just a little bit more than next to nothing. The more I learn, the more I learn that I don't know very much. But I got very excited about learning because I am like a very young child in the level of excitement I get over learning new things and realizing that if I can just learn some of the basic fundamentals and basic principles in various disciplines, it gives me the opportunity to be even more curious and get excited and explore and discover even more about it. So even though I don't know a whole lot more than I did a year or so ago, I'm very excited about what I have learned, and I'd like to share some of that with you. This is sort of a prologue for the 10-part series that I have written and have uh, mapped out for... Uh, the next 10 podcasts. So this is this is kind of the prologue for that. Let's jump in. Astronomy, space, the universe. What is existence? What is love? What is the universe? Three interconnected ideas. Which is the most difficult to define? You remember how your mom might have once said something like, love keeps multiplying or something like that every time she had another child and had less time for you? My mom's awesome. The universe is a little like that. It's expanding slowly, infinitely. That's what some smart people think. Love, the universe, constantly expanding. Whoa, trippy. What is existence? Well, we are here, and we are sentient life forms living on the one planet we're aware of currently that is able to support life forms and thus provide us the environment for our brains to be intelligent enough to ask that simple question, what is existence? By the way, Sentient means that a being is capable of feeling and thinking. The philosopher Rene Descartes said, Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. Very famous phrase. It is the idea that the simple act of questioning one's existence proves the reality that we have minds and therefore exist. It's kind of a circular definition, but it sort of works. We think about existing, therefore we exist in this universe this expanding universe that is unfathomably big, and we are unfathomably small. What is the universe, and how old is it, and why does it exist, and how much longer will it be around, and what's outside of it? And let's start with the basics of the little bit we know about our tiny neighborhood called Earth. We'll start with our solar system. And spoiler alert, I don't have answers for most of the questions I just asked, so we'll figure them out together over the next several episodes. I'm sitting here at the studio at the top of the mountain with my next guest, my daughter, 12 years old. What is your name again? Magdalena. Tell me how you're doing in this era of the pandemic. Your very first one. Congratulations. You're still alive. Are you feeling decent? Yes. Um, I'm getting 
kind of tired of being at home and not going anywhere and being with the same people. It feels kind of like Groundhog Day. Okay, so note to our audience, when she makes a reference to being with the same people, then I would be one of the people that she's referring to. What sort of coping mechanisms would you advise for other 10 to 20-year-olds in being cooped up with their families? Um, I like, well, I started a blog, and it's fun to post things on there. Um, it's fun to make art, read, watch movies together. Have you seen any good movies or films lately? And tell me about them. Yes. Yesterday and Avatar. Tell me about Yesterday first. We saw that several yesterdays ago. Um, it's about, so the world forgets about the Beatles, except for this one guy, and he has to try to remember their songs and um, plays them and starts getting famous. If you had to go for the rest of this pandemic, for whatever duration, stay in place, lockdown, quarantine, however long this all goes, and you could only listen to either the Beatles or ABBA, who would you choose? Oh, um... Maybe the Beatles. Okay, and what if it came down to listening to the Beatles or listening to me do a podcast, the same one over and over again on repeat? Probably the Beatles. The Beatles. Okay, and gotcha. So I will work on being more interesting. Tell me what, I mean, the premise of yesterday sounds exciting, but what do you? What made it so watchable? I mean, if I'm not mistaken, you've watched it twice in the last two weeks. Yes. Why is it so great? Um. What makes it worthy of spending not 90 minutes, but 180 minutes of your time? Well, wait, it's three hours? Well, I was figuring if it was about an hour and a half one time through, then double that. Oh. <clears throat> because I'm a bit of a mathematician in my spare time. Um. I think they do a really good job with the actors, or the actors do a good job, um, especially Lily James, which was, she was also in Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again. Um, yeah, I like the view they took on the Beatles. Okay, I like that. And what about Avatar? Now, one thing we never really talked about is, do you know who plays, what, what is her name, Nay Nefer, uh, Nefla, Nefla, Nefertiti, uh, uh, Jake Sully's, um, no, I don't, okay, do you know who plays that? No. It's this, I just forgot her name, but it's, uh, Zoe Saldana from Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, really? Yeah, I had totally forgotten that. If you were in a battle against zombies and you needed the help of either Zoe Saldana's character off Guardians of the Galaxy or Zoe Saldana's character off Avatar, which one, which version of her would you choose? Probably her from Avatar. Why? Uh, well, it depends on where I was. Because if I was in, if I was on Pandora, then 
she would know the land and or actually yeah just um whatever her name is from avatar okay gotcha what are you reading um i'm reading animal farm and the last battle the last book in the chronicles of narnia is it a bit of a relief to be wrapping up the Chronicles of Narnia series? Seven books in, you're almost done. Do you feel, what What sort of feeling do you have that that world is almost over? Um, I'm kind of sad, and, but I'm curious to know how it will end. What's your favorite book so far in the series? Um, hmm. Maybe... On the count of three, we'll we'll say I'm gonna say what I think you're gonna say in a moment. Okay, ready? Wait, One. can it be for today? Sure. One, two, three. Silver the magician's chair. nephew. That's was my second guess. Um, okay, and Animal Farm. You're reading Orwell's Animal Farm. Um, what are you what are you thinking of that so far? I really like it. Why? It has good dialogue. And the characters are very interesting. They are certainly interesting. What do you think if if we suddenly, and not to fly you into a panic or anything, but if we had to flee to the mountains, which are not far away, and you could only take three books with you, and you had to decide in the Can next they be 30 minutes. No, you couldn't take like the 13-book series of unfortunate <sighs> events ones. If you could only take three books with you, what would you, what would you take? And you had to decide right now. Okay, the first book in the series of Unfortunate Events, Matilda, and, oh, um, clock is ticking, hmm. clock is ticking going down, you're just going to have to take off with two books. Uh, maybe the first book in the Mysterious Benedict Society. Okay, solid choices. <laughs> um, how would you describe, last question, how would you describe your level of um, fear over what's happening with COVID-19, a.k.a. coronavirus, this pandemic? Um, well, I'm worried that we're not going to have school for the next, for the rest of the year. Um, I don't want to get it or give it to someone else. And I am especially worried because someone in Washougal has it. So, yeah, I'm pretty worried. Is talking about it now, do you, does it make you feel less worried or more worried? Um, about the same. About the same, sort of a flat line. Okay, well, I'm going to tell you right now, I think we're going to, I think we're going to be okay. Can we agree on that, that we are going to do our best to be okay and to help each other be okay? I can't promise. Well, you know, you can promise. You can promise to give your best, to try. Can you promise to try to give your best? No. Why? I don't want to. You are your father's daughter. Um, note, I'm her father. Why are you being so suddenly frustrating? Because I don't want to. Okay, can we find something to agree on so that I can say thank you for being here today and close this out on a good note? Yes. Can we agree to 
give it 90% of our best and we'll move on from there. Yes. Okay. Well, there you have it. My daughter, 12 years old. That's not her name. That's her age. Thank you for being here today. See you next time. Farewell. I am a person of reason and a person of faith. Some might see that as being a paradox. I do not. I would love to share with you why over the coming episodes. For the next upcoming ones, I'm going to be focusing on the Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. I have written a sort of survey of each. Whether or not you are a religious person, I think it is important to understand the origins, the basic beliefs, and the fundamental histories of where each of these religions came from. So we're going to be focusing on those three over the coming episodes. First of all, we're just going to jump right into Judaism. I'm going to cover the first uh, two chapters. They're short little ones. The first one is about 30 seconds long, if that. So let's jump in. Judaism, chapter one, scattered. Jews can be found all over the world, in almost every country, and in many shapes and forms and colors. What binds them together is their religion, Judaism. For centuries, the Jewish people have survived all over the earth, scattered apart, Yet they have thrived and found community with one another through their religion. How did Judaism come to be? Chapter 2, Terah. There lived a man named Terah. He had three sons. Two of them had wonderful names, but I'm not going to include them because this is not their story, and it might clog up your brain with unnecessary detail. So I will not tell you about Nahor and Haran. This is about Abraham who was born approximately 2,000 years after the biblical creation of Adam. Please forget the names of Nahor and Haran now. Thank you. Terah and his sons, one of whom was Abraham, were Chaldeans who lived in the land of Ur. Ur was an important city-state in Mesopotamia and was located near the Euphrates River. As a side note, Ur is located in modern-day Iraq. It used to be a coastal city, but it now is, according to my friends at Wikipedia, quote-unquote, significantly inland. As another side note, Abraham was originally named Abram. When he was a sprightly and virile young man of 99, God changed his name from Abram to Abraham. Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of crowds. They're both pretty cool names, but Abraham certainly has more possibilities for cool nicknames and also father of crowds or multitudes is a good description because he became the father of billions of people. Yes, if you're reading this, you are distantly related to Abraham. Distantly. How distant? I don't know. Hashtag 23andMe. Anyway, they worshipped idols and Terah was important because he made them. If you were a kid who lived in a country where idols were important and your dad was the one making the idols, then I imagine you might think you had a pretty cool dad. Abraham was a thinker, and when you're tending sheep in the fertile pasture lands of the Euphrates Valley, then you have plenty of time to think. So Abraham thought lots, and one of the things he apparently thought about lots was the nature of idols. Remember, his dad made them. He had lots of time to think about the strangeness of worshiping and praying to something that he had watched his father form out of stone or clay. Eventually, Abraham's thoughts became words, and words became questions, and when you're in a land where idols are worshipped, and you start questioning whether they're worthy of worship, then life can become dangerous. Especially after Abraham proposed that rather than worshiping idols, 
they should worship a god who had actually created the earth and all that was on it. Abraham made the wise but sad decision to leave his homeland with his family and all their possessions and head north to Canaan. Abraham was called Ibri, which means from a cross, spelled capital I-B-R-I. In other words, the guy who came across the Euphrates and Tigris rivers. So his family was called Ibris. I am unsure if my pronunciation is correct. Ibris, Ibris, that is where the Hebrew comes from. Hebrew equals Ibri, I-B-R-I. Abraham and his family, the Hebrews, were similar to the Canaanites in many ways. But in one significant way, they were completely different. They believed that idols should not be worshipped. In our next episode, we will jump into chapter 3, The Rise. This next section is about parenting, about dads, about childhood, and about being whatever age you're at. This is called Rain, Heat, Awesome Dads. They walked into the coffee shop soaked, helmets slopping all over as their bike and trailer just outside got drenched. The young girl's long hair dripped to buckets as they got in line behind me. Looks like you earned your hot beverages today, I said to the dad. He nodded with wet hair, smiling. I promised her two things today, a bike ride and hot chocolate. So here we are. I said we'd do it, and we did. Nice, I said. Pretty sure that's something that's going to get remembered. I waved goodbye on my way out and got in my car, which is not a convertible. This is called, But Wait Until He's Four, Thoughts on Three Years. This is a little thing I love about my wife. She says stuff like, I just love the ages of two, three, four. They are so fun. There's something special about them. And then, of course, she goes on to add what's special about every other age as well, which I also love about her. If you're going to make reductive inferences about her not liking other ages, then you can stop listening now, or just don't be like that. I simply like the fact that she embraces the joys of those ages. That attitude is, inf- is infectious and helps me to remember to go into each day and interaction with our three-year-old with the ex- expectation of great moments and memories ahead. Usually there are, like these. Got a boogie, part one. That's gross, I said. Get your finger out of your nose. It's okay, he said, continuing to mine with a stubby forefinger. I'm just getting a boogie out. I know, I said. It's gross. Go wipe it on some tissue or something in the bathroom, and then wash your hands. Okay, he said, trotting off in the direction of the kitchen, and returning 30 seconds later, his hands dripping. What did you do? I asked. I got the boogie out, he huffed dramatically. I threw it in the sink, and it flew way over my head, and then it landed in the sink, and it washed down the sink. Okay, I said. So you basically did exactly what I said, which was to go to the bathroom, wipe it on some tissue, and wash your hands. Uh Uh-huh, he nodded, shaking his head and working on the remaining nostril. Snack. Can I please have peanuts, he asked. After you pick up your toys in the living room, I'll get you a little snack, I assured him. Okay, he said, bouncing off to find homes for his Duplo blocks and books. A surprisingly short time later, he flounced into the kitchen. I'm ready for my peanuts, he announced. Did you pick up your toys, I asked. 
He nodded vigorously. I began walking toward the living room. Buddy, I said, eyes sweeping over the carnage, you are definitely not done picking up. Daddy, he cried, catching up to me. I didn't want you to look. I didn't want you to check on my toys. George Washington Carver. Daddy, he shrieked happily. Can I please have a snack? I really need a snack. I'm guessing, I said, that you have a strong opinion on what that snack should be. Uh-huh, he exclaimed. I need peanuts. I really need peanuts. I'll cut an apple, I said. We'll do apple slices this afternoon. Good idea, he said. We'll do both. I'll have apple slices and peanuts. I just want 300 pieces of peanuts. Shall we get them? You, I said, are something. He is. I cannot even say. I cannot even say how much I loathe people saying things, especially when it's delivered as some great piece of advice, some variation of, quote-unquote, just wait until he or she is blank years old. Just wait. You won't know what's coming. I cannot even say, but I'm trying here. Got a boogie, part two. Buddy, I said, it is super hard for me to brush your teeth when you're simultaneously picking your nose. Daddy, he said with toothbrush in mouth and multiple digits exploring nasal cavity, I'm just getting a boogie out. You have a point there, I sighed. This. I loved two. I love three. And I'll love four. There is no part, no age, no stage, no piece of our children's lives I am dreading or afraid of. I have uncertainty and doubt and concerns about how we can best support and help them at different stages through life's challenges, but I do not dread a moment, not a moment of their lives, not one. Truly, do this. Surround yourself with interesting people. Do it. I do. The following is a snippet of dialogue over the phone with my brother Jamie, nine years my junior, long one of my favorite people to speak with, largely due to our freewheeling dialogues that cover a great deal of territory. The audio quality on this may not be what it should be, and for that I blame, well, this is a problem, I don't know who to blame. The actors of our generation are Matt Damon and Paul Rudd, so yeah, of course they could play anything. I've always wished that he would do a sequel to Stuck on You, that was such a good movie. It was, but Ben Carson is tied up doing other things now. (laughs) Solid reference. Good one. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I am so glad that we just have people in leadership positions in this country that are, wow, just just where they should be. I mean, he trained trained as a, what was it, neurosurgeon? He arguably the world's most famous pediatric neurosurgeon. And for a time, he was was good at it. For a time, he was my childhood pen pal. I don't know if you remember that. I do remember that. It was my dream to be a pediatric neurosurgeon until I realized you had to go to medical school and take all the science classes. Yeah, so he had a brief foray into acting with Cameo and Stuck on You, that Matt Damon and slash Greg Kinnear film that you're referring to. Um, Greg Kinnear, who was also from Tucson. Good point. We are connected. So then he had his brief foray foray, uh, into almost being president by almost i mean yeah not in the sense way. in the in the sense that i am almost standing outside your your condo right now i'm not i'm thousands of miles away mm-hmm. um and then he had his foray into uh is he head of housing and urban Deve- development right now he's still hanging in by a thread 
Yeah, I mean, who would have thought that being a pediatric neurosurgeon would be such a logical step toward becoming the head who of would have housing and urban development? Who would have thought? Anyway, at one point at in least, his life, at least one person thought that. At one point in his life, he was incredibly gifted at what he did. He had gifted. <laughs> he had gifted hands. He did. Would you? I mean, would that be something you'd need to think about? Or do you feel that it's your responsibility because you took out that student loan debt um, a, a significant amount? Do you feel that you kind of owe it to the universe, especially since you won a television many years ago? Um, do you feel that you need to I don't think that I owe it things to the, by paying it back? I don't think that I owe it to the universe. As you promised, which mom has asked us to keep our word. And you gave your word that you would pay it back. So, is that what a master promissory note means? Um, yeah, I, yeah. I think it's pronounced promise, a promise note. Oh, yeah. I don't think I. Owe it's it like the student loan version of a promise ring. I, I don't really understand the concept of promise rings, but we can get into that later. Um, I don't think I owe it to the universe. I probably it could be argued that I owe it to the smattering of banks that hold my debt. Um, you mean the banks being, that are looking for a two hundred and fifty billion dollar um, bailout right now? Because you know, what, of, you know what? You're right. I don't know. <laughs> no, I don't know. I'm just I'm just asking. Like I owe money for student loans. And, you know, I'm just in a quandary right now over whether I really should be repaying those. Like, for example, I'm doing good for the universe right now and um, talking to you because I know you need somebody to talk with. Thank, a lot you of for, people need thank you for reminding me that, yes, while I am alive in Tucson, I am all by myself. Okay, please don't sing anymore. I don't want to have any licensing issues. Um, so, yeah, please no more song lyrics unless they're ones that you've made up. Which, how are you spending your time right now? Aside from being an essential worker in the aerospace industry, how are you spending your time right now? Um, I'm spending a lot of time with my television. Is there anything that you are scared of right now? There's a lot of things I'm I'm terrified of, so I'm just wondering if we're in the same boat. Is there anything that you're scared of? I guess if I'm scared, I'm scared that someone that I love will be negatively affected by by the virus. So what I what I hear from you is you are scared that at some point, if I'm inferring correctly, extrapolating what you're saying. You are very scared that at some point you could run out of television programming, even though there's plenty now. And I completely understand that. For me, I am terrified of not being able to talk to you. I can understand how you are scared, deathly scared of losing television programming that's important to you. I'm scared of losing you. That's what scares me. I that, was, that was adeptly done, what you did there. It's ridiculous. I, I don't know what you're talking about. We all have our fears, and you are scared. It sounds to me like almost in panic mode over losing your access to television programming, and I am terrified of just losing you. Well, and clowns. I'm scared of clowns. Earlier this year, we decided to start learning poetry, memorizing poetry, one poem per month, and the first piece we chose was John Donne's No Man is an Island. 
this 1624 piece still holds a lot of meaning hundreds of years later. It's about isolation, and as we're currently in the middle or the beginning of a pandemic, it's really struck an emotional chord with me and looking at the ways that people really are connected, no matter how isolated you feel, uh, a reminder to feel empathy and concern for others. When something happens to one person, to think of how it affects others, to realize that literally, as the title of the poem says, no one person is an island. We are all connected. Our three-year-old jumped right into this as well, and this is a reading of several of us doing No Man is an Island. No man is an island, and I Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If it's gladly run away by the sea, no one is an island. As well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thy friends or of thine were. Any man's death diminishes me, because I am involved in mankind. And therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Beautiful. And if you're wondering what the sound of that pattering is in the background, it's rain. We recorded in the car, and it was pouring down rain outside, which is also beautiful. A whole bunch of people think that parking lots are the most beautiful thing in the world. Personally, I think that forests are more beautiful than parking lots. Sometimes I like to do something in forests called camping. And I wrote a little piece about camping, just five random thoughts on camping. Just five thoughts, that's it. 1A, there's no release if there's no catch. Once, when I was a kid, my dad came home from work on a Friday afternoon and said, come on, let's go. He took me camping and I remember vegetarian fishing, dangling a fishing line into river rapids with part of a Snickers bar for bait and almost catching a crawdad which we would not have eaten because we were vegetarian and remained so. Number 1B, board chairman. Once I remember, and I remember almost nothing of the wider context of this situation, but once I was with my dad and we needed a place to stay. And I think hotels were full up or maybe they were just too boring to him at the time. So anyway, we pulled up outside a hospital, a big hospital, and got our sleeping bags out and slept on a small grassy area by the parking lot. Of course, security came along eventually and kicked us out, but the joke was really on them because by that point we had already gotten a good night's sleep. I learned something valuable from my dad. Sometimes you just got to think a little bigger, or a little smaller, or a little stranger than everyone else, and then just do it. And chances are that you'll figure out a lot of solutions to life's problems that way. Number two, the labyrinths of memory. Surprisingly, camping with kids is different than camping by yourself or even with other adults. Strangely, I did not recognize this as a child. My dad was a master at recognizing the importance of payoff and being okay, I think, with putting in a lot of work for the opportunity of making a handful of moments that maybe will get remembered. And sometimes kids do remember, even in the days before Facebook, Instagram, and selfies on location. Number four, ultra-specific visuals that make me happy to see when I'm camping or not. A. My wife in a pink sundress, yellow sunglasses, and pinned up hair, holding hands with her son as she escorts him to the bathroom, which could be in the forest or anywhere, because you're camping. B. My wife in a pink sundress, yellow sunglasses, and pinned up hair, reading the biography of Theodore Geisel I just got at the library, while our daughter alternates between making bracelets and practicing headstands using my wife's back as support. C. 
A dripping, gooey, warm, messy s'more with dark chocolate around a fire with an evening of lively bantering ahead. Number four, part one, the labyrinths of memory with map. My most vivid memory camping with my own children is still probably the first time I took our daughter solo. It was the eve of my birthday. We were on our way to meet my wife in Bend the next day, and I single-handedly set up the tent while holding my daughter and fending off wild bears and boars with the other hand, or at least being prepared if the rustling in the forest turned out to be them. She woke me up every 12 minutes throughout the night to remind me how unhappy she was. It was one of the worst nights of sleep I've ever had, and it was so bad that I just started laughing at her every time she woke me up because I knew I'd laugh about it someday, so might as well get a jump start. It also brings up something important, I believe, about raising children. True respect is not about having them try something once and then accepting their judgment. Quote-unquote, he or she just doesn't like this or that. Respect is encouraging and creating opportunities that keep providing ways for them to push themselves and oftentimes learn to like experiences instead of accepting immediate gratification and judgment of, I don't like this. You don't get to try something once and decide that your definitive decision is, I don't like it. You find other ways to keep coming back to it, sometimes in fresh ways, and help embed one of my favorite ideas. Be open to change and to new experiences and to understanding that not immediately connecting with something is not sufficient reason to turn your mind off of it. So we camp. And quickly after that initial experience, it became one of her favorite things after going to Powell's books, anyway. Number four, four camp foods I believe in. Corn pancakes, fried potatoes, hot dogs, s'mores, refried beans on bread with sliced yellow peppers. Number four B, the infinite ache. I feel sore after camping. It takes so much more work to do almost everything, but to eat, sleep, Live outside, breathing fresh air and campfire smoke. That's an opportunity, like few others, to connect with your family, socially, spiritually, to make you remember it's okay to have to work a little bit to do some of the basic things in life. It heightens your sensibilities and ability to appreciate little things, like dishwashers. Number 2C, jumping backwards, the tent trailer of Schorberg. Once upon a time, our family had a tent trailer. Then one day, we were towing it and sideswiped some cars on the side. It's a vague recollection. We never got another tent trailer, and that's really my only memory of it. The end. Number 2D. Comfort. I have slept on air mattresses, and I certainly like them. But I have also slept many times on hard ground. And I suppose I feel that at this point in my life, I run very hard, and I work very hard, and I play very hard, and I push myself very hard, and by the time I have the opportunity to sleep, that is the luxury. Not the level of comfort, necessarily, but simply the opportunity to sleep. So when I sleep in a tent with hard ground underneath, it may not be the epitome of luxury, but it is still sleep that I appreciate, especially if I'm not being woken up every 12 minutes. Thoughts on a pandemic. Black swans and journalists. History is important to me. The study of past events and how they influence the future, and importantly, the way we think about history when it's happening. Most of the time, we don't recognize most happenings as important unless they're high visibility. A ways down the road, we like to sound smart like we saw it coming. But when, quote-unquote, important history is happening, it is so strange the way it just happens. There's not a big siren going off announcing that something momentous is beginning. It 
just starts. And now we're toward the beginning of something that will be a formative part of our children's memories and a watershed moment for societal change and how we live our lives. From where it comes. More important than ever is the idea of reliable sources. Thanks to a certain president, we have a diminished confidence in the media to reliably and accurately share information. Translation. When we need society at large to listen to relevant, important updates in which days and hours matter, then there have to be agreed-upon sources of information that may not be 100% accurate 100% of the time, but can be relied upon to do their best to uphold journalistic standards and to serve the public interest in pursuit of and respect for the truth. There has been a relentless hammering away at the media's credibility by the president, and we are seeing the results of that. Distrust in the transmission of basic factual information. Gamification. If you have kids and they're at home, then possibly you might be spending some extra time with them. This is either an opportunity or a threat. Make it a memory. Don't feel guilty when you turn on a telly, and don't be afraid to talk with them about what's going on. In fact, as far as I'm concerned, make sure you do talk to them. This is a new phase of life for us all. We're not hiding the reality of what's happening from young ones, so let's talk respectfully with them without trying to shield them from anything bad. Yeah, this is bad. So we talk with them and we learn to deal with the new reality together. Joke about it. Humor will get us through a lot. Also, epidemiologists, scientists, and good public policy will get us through a lot. Or don't joke about it. Some people have different types of humor and, more importantly, different anxieties. I have a long-time strange mix of survivalist mentality and an affection for an interest in people, which can be an odd pairing. I care about what's happening beyond our family, and my heart hurts for those who have already suffered much greater consequences than the mostly economic ones we have so far. So it does not bother me or bring me greater stress to consider in a rational way what's happening. I plan to rewatch Contagion this week. I'm not unaffected. I am very affected, but I have been mentally, emotionally prepared for many years for this type of happening, not simply in a logistical sense, but in an emotional one. We are in a crisis. And now we can either bury our heads in the sand and pretend it's not happening, or we can deal with it. Since I know we are dealing with it, I find a certain comfort, as many do, in humor. Sometimes in dark and inappropriate humor that is the opposite of the deep level of empathy I feel. But I also understand that joking, humor, and levity are not something that some find helpful and may increase their stress, anxiety, and worry. So be thoughtful in who you joke with. And when you joke, and regardless of what side of the fence you're on, remember that everybody handles stress, crises, and tragedy in different ways. So let's build a bridge or a tunnel across those fences of joking or not joking. Larry David, since you're not spending as much on gas, might as well spring for HBO and make yourself laugh with the nightly episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Nothing will make you laugh, groan, and be mortified like Larry David opening his mouth and getting himself into trouble again and again and again. Hike. Of course, you should be watching a little more television than usual, but if possible to safely do so, get to some woods, forests, mountains, or foggy empty beaches and do some walking in nature. Take some food and make it a picnic. Note, I wrote and recorded this before there were stay-at-home orders in various parts of the country and state, including where I'm at, so probably not such a good idea to do now. You should probably be at home, but as soon as you're able, then you should get out and hike. When it's safe to do, not only for you, but for others. Kate, Jay, Gavin, Andy. Leaders handle things in different ways, and obviously we're not in competition, but 
wow, our governor is handling things way better than Oregon's. That would be Jay Inslee over Kate Brown. Matter of fact, Andrew Cuomo, New York, gets a higher score too. Why? Here's one little big reason. When you need businesses and people to help out with, say, supplies, try asking, encouraging, motivating first. That means before you issue the type of mandate that shuts down dental offices and then requires them to donate all protective supplies to hospitals, consider communicating and talking with them about ways they can step up. I'm not against asking businesses to step up. But try asking first. Give people and businesses the chance to serve and to step up. In November, I will vote for the candidate most likely to replace the current one. I believe strongly that he is a man who has always and will always look out for himself first, before the country or anyone else. I believe he has betrayed the ideals and principles this country stands for, and in the strongest possible way, believe we must have someone else in the office of president. That being said, a basic understanding of human psychology and motivation goes a long way. When you issue the type of mandate that Kate Brown has done, it is the kind of thing that makes otherwise progressive thinking people start to consider voting Republican. What she has done is exactly the kind of thing that makes people nervous, as it should. Even in times of crisis, there are ways you can start to motivate people and businesses that do not involve invoking executive privilege as a first reaction. There are many businesses that are not going to recover, period. In the short term, that seems like a crass thing to say. Saving lives is the priority right now. But we're also idiots to not try to try and look down the road at the impact of our reactions to what's happening. We will recover. We will build a new normal. But there will be many people and many businesses that don't. Today, right now. If you haven't seen Yesterday yet, then do it. A film that imagines a world without the Beatles, one man finds what it's like to be the only person who remembers them. A fairy tale of sorts of what happens when the world suddenly and radically changes for everyone on the planet. A thoughtful, sad, yet romantic and uplifting film that is magical. And amidst the reality of right now, we need a wee bit of magic. Assorted Moments I got trapped in a public restroom with my wife, and together we used our petite elbows to hygienically wiggle our way out. I watched my wife wrestle our three-year-old across the grass on a sunny afternoon with the magnificent mountains of the Columbia Gorge in the background. They did not observe six-foot distancing at this point, but I gave them a break because she was my wife and he was my son. I watched my daughter click away on a DSLR camera as we walked in nature and my son set up a time lapse on the Columbia River and I felt my seven-month-old sigh and deep breathe against my chest as we strolled in the sun and I looked back at my wife holding hands and giggling with our toddler and there was joy. I spoke with my uncle in California and texted with friends around the country and messaged our family thread throughout the day and FaceTimed various others and was grateful for technology that allows us to stay connected amidst these challenges. I received news that people close to my heart who are trying to return to the U.S. from Canada made it safely across and are now en route back home to the Pacific Northwest. My heart is lighter. The quick trip I planned to Southern California to roll back up north with someone important did not work out. It was a good thing I did not go, and it helps to have people understand. Sunday, I had planned on leaving later in the week. By Friday, in California's lockdown, this is, was in week one, it seemed like a hilarious thought that it would have been a plan just a matter of days before. I did hop back on Instagram this week, and the first thing that popped up was her, my little sister, performing one of her inimitable performances. 
Lanessa Cherie Long on Instagram, should you wish to follow her. It was a good return after a lengthy sabbatical. I talked with one of my favorite people to talk with about books and about, well, most anything, and she made me one of the 10 best sandwiches I've ever had and sent me on the road with two coffees, hot and cold, and as I drove home, I replayed snippets of our dialogues over a short visit. Dialogues that included the Beatles, Alice Munro, Roald Dahl, politics, straws, and the question of which record Hey Jude was on. Answer, none. It was a single. I hugged her before leaving, and it was a good hug. A good hug, and sometimes those things carry you through tough times, or challenging weeks, or virtual hugs sent from afar. So, an appropriate type of hug from far away to you, the world. Let's dance. Thanks for listening through my first episode. Let me know if you have suggestions, requests, or feedback. I appreciate your support, and please subscribe here if you like what you've heard. In the meantime, you can go to verylongchronicles.com or verylongmedia.com for more thoughts, stories, photographs, and musings on life, love, education, and people. Play hard, make stuff, be kind. Until next, Joseph out. Mm -hmm.